Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Hey, real quick, before we open up God's Word today, I want to point out something in your bulletin. There's an insert for our next Discover class that's coming up on December 2nd and December 9th. If you are somebody that would like more information about our church, or maybe you're thinking about placing your membership here at the church, or just got some questions, want to meet some of the leaders and whatnot, Discover is for you, and I would encourage you to, to sign up for that. That's what that insert is in there. You can drop that off in the metal receptacles on your way out, or you can drop it off at the, uh, at the Welcome Center, or you can even come and give it to me. I'll make sure it gets turned in for you. But we want you to know about this opportunity, and um, those classes do fill up, so I would get yours in as quick as possible. Hey, please open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, and I, I say this kind of stuff all the time. If you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, just go to the table of contents and find the page number and turn there. It is not cheating. That's why it's in there. You're allowed to do that. It's perfectly fine. But the book of Ecclesiastes, if you want to kind of an easy way to find it, if you were just to open your Bible, most likely it's going to open up to Psalms or Proverbs. That's about the middle of the Bible. Ecclesiastes is one book past Proverbs, all right, if that helps you. So Ecclesiastes, that's where we're going to be. And while you're finding the book of Ecclesiastes, let me just tell you a few things about it that's going to kind of help us as we dive into this today. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by a guy named King Solomon. Solomon wrote several books of the Bible. He wrote the book of Song of Solomon, which we did a three-part series in that earlier this year. He wrote the book of Proverbs, and here he writes Ecclesiastes. Solomon was the son of King David. King David's probably one of the most recognized, uh, well-known figures in the Old Testament. What is King David remembered for? He was a man after God's own heart. That's right. So that's King David. Now Solomon, we know quite a bit about Solomon. Um, here's something that stands out kind of above the rest. When he was a young leader, um, God was like, hey, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give it to you. And Solomon humbly said, I need wisdom. Remember that? God was so impressed. He gave him all this wisdom and gave him all this other stuff as well. The Bible tells us that people used to come from far and wide to sit at Solomon's feet and just listen to the wisdom that came out of him. Now, there's a few other details. We know that under Solomon's leadership, um, that God's temple was built and what a magnificent temple it was. He in, uh, expanded Israel's influence and its territories. Um, Solomon, during his 40 years as king of Israel, he amassed a fortune of wealth. Now, from an outsider's perspective, if you look at Solomon's life, you don't know anything else, you would say, now that is a story of success. That's a story of, of, of great fortune and fame, and, and he certainly would be the envy of the world. But looking at Solomon's life from an insider's perspective, and the Bible gives us that inside perspective, Solomon then really is the owner of one of the Bible's most tragic stories. I mean, he's the guy that served God faithfully for many years of his life. But as he grew older and as he grew wealthier and as he grew more influential, he took his eyes off of the Lord and did many things that displeased God. You don't need to turn in your Bibles there, but let me just show you where it says that. First Kings chapter 11, verse 4, it says this, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart to other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Azareth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable gods of the Amorites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. 
Solomon's latter years were miserable because God had removed his hand of blessing off of Solomon. And he maintained Solomon's throne only because he promised that to his father, David. That's who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes that's open in front of you right now. We don't know exactly when, during Solomon's 40 years as king, that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but most scholars are on the same page in their assumption that he wrote it towards the end of his life. (coughs) Excuse me. And this is why they think he wrote it at the end of his life. Because as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon seems to be reflecting back over his life in a uh, in like de- like depressingly reminiscing what his life had become. So as you read it, that's that's the vibe you get from this is a guy that is looking back over the course of his life and, and it's kind of depressing. Have you seen the movie Forrest Gump? Are you familiar? It's a movie starring Tom Hanks. <coughs> Excuse me. For the majority of that movie, here you have Forrest Gump, he's sitting on a park bench. And he is reflecting back on his life. I mean, the movie itself is one big flashback over his life. He's thinking about all the places he's gone and all the people that he's met and all the influential circumstances that have influenced his life. Well, Ecclesiastes, if you will, is like Solomon sitting on a park bench reflecting on the totality of his life. He is contemplating all the places he's been, all the people that he's met. He's recalled everything that he's tried, all the wealth that he's accumulated, all the fabulous food and drink that he's gotten to experience. He'll think back of all the projects and buildings he had done and all the people who have served his every want and need. He is going to reflect on all of that and he's going to summarize this. It was all meaningless. He says, in fact, my life has been like chasing the wind. I mean, he's sitting there, he's like, all of these things that he has been involved with, it was meant nothing. In fact, there's going to be nine different times in these 12 chapters that he describes his life and all of his pursuits as nothing more than chasing the wind. Now, I want to encourage you on your own time to sit down and read all 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes because we're simply not going to take the time to read all 12 today. You know what I think would be kind of an interesting experiment for me to read all 12 chapters of you and see who's still left in this room when I'm done. We're not going to take the time to do that. I'm going to trust you can do that on your own. But if you will, I think you're going to be surprised by how relatable this book of the Bible is to our lives today. I think that's what you'll see. You'll be surprised by how relatable it is to the the life, the culture we're living, living in. I'm going to tell you something. As you read that, I hope you draw this conclusion that you don't have to be wealthy or prestigious or powerful like Solomon was to fall victim to the very same trappings that took his legs out from under him. You don't have to be having all these luxuries and all these glories of mankind and all this influence to experience the same depressing emotions that got Solomon feeling so helpless as he reflected over what his life had become. Uh, there's things that destroyed Solomon. The very things that did are the same things that seek to destroy each and every one of us. So let's read what he said in Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. 
He said, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much uh, much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. What is Solomon acknowledging here as he gets started in his writing? He's acknowledging that, hey, in my world, I'm top dog. I'm the king. And this isn't an arrogant thing. He's really just stating a fact. It is true. He's like, no one's higher than me. I am standing on top of the mountain, the highest mountain. I can't climb any further. And I have seen everything that there is to see under the sun. He's just kind of saying, look, there is nothing that I haven't experienced. There's nothing I haven't seen. And my conclusion to all of it is that it's all meaningless. My life has been a chasing after the wind. We read this and we're like, what is he getting at here? Because it sounds like a man who's experiencing a midlife crisis, doesn't it? But I would argue that what he's experiencing is far worse than that. What he's getting at here in the very beginning of his writing and what he'll unpack more as you read it on your own is that I am the wisest, most powerful, richest, most influential man in the world and I cannot figure out why my life feels so empty. That's what he's getting at. There has to be something more than this, but it's escaping him. In all of his wisdom, he cannot put his finger on that thing. And so his conclusion is this. It's all meaningless. Everything about my life has just been chasing after the wind. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not an entirely unique or new outlook on the world. Solomon's not the first guy that's ever going to have those thoughts. He's certainly not the last one. I would imagine that if people could articulate their feelings and put them in writing, they might sound kind of similar to what Solomon writes here in Ecclesiastes. There's like this failure to see the purpose uh, or the bigger picture, perhaps, of what God is doing. That There's an outlook, there's a view of this world, and and the conclusion is there's got to be more than this. That's what Solomon is writing about. What is this life really all about? Because he's seeing that what it has been about doesn't amount to anything. So he says it's meaningless, meaningless. And I I wonder if there's anybody in this room right now who is having similar thoughts to Solomon. And I wonder if those thoughts, those feelings, those emotions is what brought you into this place today. Because if they did, I believe that the Lord is going to show you something very significant today through his word. That it is not an accident that you are here. God's going to show you something. So you got your Bibles open. Look at chapter 2. What does Solomon write next? He says, I said to myself, verse 1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. 
Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what good was for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves or to, to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I don't know if you're somebody that likes to take notes in church, but if you are, this would be a great thing to write down and remember. Solomon had everything, yet his life was empty. Solomon had everything, yet his life was very empty. What did he have? Well, there's a list that he gives us in the Bible about what he had. He had, he had houses, he planted vineyards, he made gardens, he had parks, he built reservoirs, he owned herds and flocks, silver and gold, treasures from around the world. This is a guy who had absolutely everything, yet none of those things were very fulfilling to him. He was empty on the inside. And you know what's so tragic about this? You know what's tragic about it? Is that it's so relatable. Isn't this relatable to our world today? And we could point to story after story, both of people who are very famous and people you have never heard of before that were able to seemingly pursue and get everything that they ever wanted and were the envy of everyone who knew them, yet it was completely unfulfilling to them. Friday afternoon, Kirsten and I, my wife, we took a stroll through downtown Bentonville, and maybe some of you were down there at the same time. We just didn't cross paths. Um, it was the first Fridays that they do, um, the first Friday of every month, and this is the big one. This is one where a lot of the vendors and things, they bring out all the toys, you know, and they give away a lot of toys. There's a lot of kids down there. And so my wife and I, we love walking through stuff like that. This message was heavy on my mind, of course. I've been working on it for a while, and as we're walking through there, as we walk, I, I, I couldn't help but be reminded that the world we live in is constantly screaming at us that you are missing out on something. You know, vendors were saying, and it's, I'm not criticizing the vendor at all, I loved it, you know, um, but they're saying, hey, you come over and you got to get the latest dart gun or your kids won't be in with the cool dart gun kids, you know? It's like, I, it doesn't matter, you got 15 dart guns at home, you need this one. You walk over here and, oh, these toys, oh, you know, somehow we're missing out. If we don't have this or have that, it was just kind of a reminder with Ecclesiastes fresh on my mind that this world screams at us that you need this and your life is missing if you don't have this. That's the world we live in. Hey, you're, you're missing something if you're not driving this kind of car. 
Hey, you know what? If you haven't achieved this level of, in your business or this level of income, you are somehow a failure. You know, if you haven't risen to this prestigious position or this level of education, and if your house doesn't meet this square foot requirements, that somehow you're missing out on life. That's what this world is screaming at us. Like, hey, if you are not wearing these kind of clothes, if you can't even fit in those kind of clothes, you are not, you are not where you're supposed to be. To me, it was just kind of a visual reminder that in some ways we're all guilty of chasing after the wind if we expect to find satisfaction and personal fulfillment in the things that this world can offer. George Foreman is a name that many of you would, would recognize immediately. He had an incredible boxing career, made him the heavyweight champion of the world. Outside of boxing, he had a very successful career as a salesman and a spokesman. Probably his most famous item he ever sold was what? The George Foreman Grill. Now admit it, how many of you have got a George Foreman Grill at home? Yep, yep, just like all the other servers. You know what I think would be fun is if we had a church potluck and the only thing you could use was a George Foreman Grill. Just bring your grill and some kind of food. Now, that sounds like a good time to me. A few years ago, uh, George Foreman, who is a Christian, he wrote what he calls a spiritual memoir of his life. And in, I have not read the whole thing, but in the beginning of his memoir, he writes about a time um, back in 1977. He was in Puerto Rico getting ready to fight Jimmy Young. And a few days before the fight, he says, I was standing on the balcony of my hotel room, and he said, heavy on my heart, and what I was contemplating in that moment was the meaning of life. He said, I sat there and thought about it, and he says, how far have I come in 28 years? I went from extreme poverty to massive amounts of wealth to the heavyweight champion of the world. He says, but in spite of all of that success, I was empty inside. That's what he says. It's absolutely empty. He said, for 10 years, I've gone through the same routine. Train, fight, win, build wealth. Train, fight, win, build wealth. Train, fight, win, build wealth. That was his routine for a decade. He'd add another win to his victory column and he would think to himself, there's got to be more than this. This cannot be what this life is all about. He writes in his book, money did not fill the void that he was experiencing. He said, I had more cash in the bank than most people could ever dream of. He said, three homes, a dozen cars, and a ranch, yet all that stuff made me feel so unfulfilled. And he said, I, I wondered, would another car make me happy? Maybe another house would make me happy. He said, some mysterious piece of the puzzle was missing, and I didn't know where to find it. Now listen to this next part of his story. He says, more than once, I toyed with the idea of driving one of my cars right over a cliff. George, in his book, is experiencing and writing about the same thing that Solomon is writing about in the book of Ecclesiastes. The same feeling, this, this same emotion is what challenges us at times. I've got everything. I'm pursuing everything. And the more I get, the more empty that I feel. Life is very 
empty from George's point of view, from Solomon's point of view. There's something missing. Are you still taking notes? This would be a good thing to remember. Not only did Solomon have everything, Solomon tried everything and he gained nothing. Solomon tried everything, yet he gained nothing. What did he try? Well, in these few short verses we read together, he lists a number of things that he tried. He tried cheering himself up with alcohol. Not only that, but he tried everything that he thought would be pleasurable to him. What did he say in verse 10 of chapter 2? He said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Could it be, and I would argue that it is, that the people back in Solomon's day really aren't all that different from people today, are they? There's very much the same issues. I've lost track now of how many people I have visited with over the many years in ministry who thought that they could find happiness at the bottom of a beer bottle or at the bottom of a wine glass. Solomon tried that. He said, I tried cheering myself up by drinking and getting drunk. He also says this, I, I embraced folly. <laughs> he goes, I, I purposely tried to be foolish. In other words, I tried to be stupid. Because I thought something would, would cheer me up and, and, and probably he puts these two things together that he mixed alcohol and stupidity and he says, I embraced it. In other words, I tried to be stupid. And that didn't fix whatever was going on inside of him he's like that was like chasing the wind too you can let your mind run wild with this next one but just not too wild he said i denied myself nothing that my eyes desired this man had 700 wives and he had 300 concubines kids if you don't know what a concubine is ask your parents on the way home to church today you just ask them. They'll tell you. This man had a problem. This man had a problem. But aren't these the very same kinds of things, the same categories of issues, and the same kind of thinking and assumptions, the same today as they were back then, of what people try to fill themselves up with? Solomon experienced... All of these things, and it left him empty and void. You could say that Solomon experimented with life, and he discovered this, that there is absolutely no lasting satisfaction with possessions or with pleasure, with power or prestige. He had everything, yet he was empty. He tried everything, gained nothing. And I would make this argument for each and every one of us here this morning, that there is no need for you and I to repeat those very same experiments with our lives. There's no reason to experiment with them ourselves. Why don't we do this? Why don't we just together accept Solomon's conclusions? And in doing so, we could avoid ourselves the heartache and the pain that must be endured when you experiment in the laboratory of life. These experiments were very costly to Solomon. In fact, even just a one of them that he's listed could cost you your very life. My recommendation is why don't we just listen to what he says? Why don't we let him do all the experimenting and we avoid it ourselves? You know, if you were to read the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, 
it almost comes across like Solomon is having this debate with himself, this back and forth as he's reminiscing about his life. It is a fascinating read and you need to do it. But what I'd like for you to do now is I'd like for you to flip over a couple pages to the very end of Ecclesiastes. It's going to be chapter 12. So flip over till you see the big number 12 in the pages. It'll probably take you, you know, four or five pages to get there. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I'd like for you to look at verse 13 because this is how he ends his writing. He's like, everything is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. He's as an older man now looking at the totality of his life. He doesn't like what he sees, and it all comes down to this one final conclusion. What does he say? Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Are you still taking notes? This would be a good thing to remember. Solomon concluded that life without God is futile. That's his big conclusion over 12 chapters. Life without God is futile. I kind of get this mental picture. Here's Solomon sitting on the bench as an older man thinking through all of it. He's like, man, you boil it all down to it. What do you got left? God is, is what's left. Everything else is meaningless. Everything else is chasing after the wind. What it really comes down to, the duty of every single person is just fear God and obey what he says. Everything else is like chasing the wind. And you know, if you find yourself here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, I think Solomon's words would encourage you to do so without delay. Because life without God is futile. Jesus said almost the exact same thing during his ministry. It's found in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Jesus said this, What good is it for someone to do what? Gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul. And Jesus is saying the same thing as Solomon. Solomon experimented with it, and Jesus is now um, elaborating on the same concept. What good is it if you pursue all these things and you gain all these things, but yet at the end of the day, you've lost your soul? It's not worth anything. So if you have not trusted Jesus as the Savior of the world, don't delay in that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, then I think we should allow Solomon's words from Ecclesiastes to teach us a few things about wealth. You know, as far as wealth and pleasure are concerned, God gives those things to us to be enjoyed. Now, don't misunderstand. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God wants you to be a multi-bajillionaire, if that's even a thing. But God does give us things. God is our provider. And God gives us things that do really promote great riches, but it may not be the kind we're thinking of. It's interesting, if you were to look at what Paul said to Timothy, the pastor, about what he needed to teach his church in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says something very interesting. He said, Timothy, this is what I want you to teach the church. He said, those that have a lot, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. You realize what he's not saying? He's not saying there's one thing wrong with having a lot. In fact, that's the big misunderstanding of the Bible. Nowhere does it say that you can't have a lot. But what we do with a lot says everything about your walk with Jesus. 
So he says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but it's like instead, not that, but instead do this, put their hope in God who does what? Richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, our hope and trust in God is what truly makes us rich and satisfied. And there's no other way to look at it. Our hope and trust in God is what truly makes us rich and satisfied. I think a Bible commentator by the name of Warren Wiersbe maybe captured it better than anybody when he says this, in Jesus Christ, we have all that we need for life and death, time and eternity. How true that is. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've received the gift of eternal life, I think Solomon asks you this question from Ecclesiastes. Are you living for the Lord or are you living for the things of the world? Now remember Solomon's story. He was a man that used to walk with God. He knew God well. Uh, his father David, a man after God's own heart, modeled for him how to live. God greatly blessed Solomon. Yet, Solomon turned from the Lord and he went his own way. Is it any wonder then, as an older man looking back on his life, he looked back as a pessimistic, skeptical man? Let me tell you something. His story, it doesn't have to be your story. God does not want his story to be your story. Now think about all the trappings that got Solomon and how they are the very same things that are, uh, that are coming after each and every one of us. It's things that you and I, even as Christians, struggle with. And I believe that this entire subject, subject matter about acquiring things and gaining things and prestigious levels and, and all this stuff, I think is such a huge growth area spiritually for us as a church family. I think Christianity in general because of, of the way that America is and the things that our country says that we need. This is a growth area in our lives, something we should pay close attention to. And what I'm talking about is trusting God throughout our lifetime to the very end so that you and I one day as older people can look back on our lives and said, I was faithful. Life was not meaningless. I chased after the right things. This is a, this is a growth area. For many Christians who still struggle with chasing after things that really are meaningless. Solomon fell, fell victim to the trappings of wealth and, position, and possessions. We would be foolish if we did not think the devil was trying to trap us with the very same things. So I want to invite you to come back next week. And I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to being here for the next four weeks. Because I believe in this new series that I'm starting next week, God's going to show us some very significant things. We're starting a new series called Too Much. Too Much. It's a simple title. Too Much. It's all about living with less in the land of more. How do we do that as Christians? Too much. Are, are we striving after too much of this and too much of that? And how do we live 
with great contentment and trust in God. Over the next four weeks, we're going to tackle together, unpack and grow and learn four biblical principles together that I believe if we can learn and own these four things, then one day when we're all much older, we're going to sit on that bench and reminisce about our life and be proud of what God has done through it. Too much. Those four principles are simply this. The first one is gratitude. You may not be aware of just how much the Bible speaks about gratitude. You know what happens when we don't have gratitude? We become entitled people. And that's not how Christians are supposed to live. So we're going to unpack this biblical principle of gratitude. We're also going to unpack this biblical principle of contentment. Are you aware of what the Bible says about being a content man or woman? Contentment. That right there I see is a huge, huge issue among Christians today. I'm not happy with my standing in life. I want what they have. I want to be here. I want to do this. I want to do that. But what does it look like to be content standing with the Holy Spirit in this world? God's got me and I'm good. So we're going to unpack that principle. We're going to unpack the principle of trust. Trust. God is the one who provides. This says in Timothy. God richly provides. God takes care of you. The Bible says that uh, the Lord even knows when a little teeny sparrow falls out of a tree, how much more important are we than sparrows? Do you trust God? And then finally, we're going to unpack this principle of humility. If you look at Solomon's life as a young leader, the humble Solomon turned to God and said, in response to God saying, what do you want? He says, I need wisdom. I need your wisdom to do this. But all of these things got in the way and his humility turned to arrogance and turned his eyes off the Lord. Humble. Humbly walking with Jesus. We're going to unpack these four things. You're also going to receive something next week when you come. Every family is going to go home with a resource. In fact, this this book is the same title as the series. It's called Too Much, Living with Less in the Land of More. And it was written by a, a friend of mine named Gary Johnson. And uh, he and I have actually been corresponding quite a bit in these last few weeks as I was getting ready for where we're going as a church in the, in the preaching. And so we'd like to, to see that every single family goes home with a copy of this. It's going to be a great companion resource as we open up God's words and talk about gratitude and contentment and trust and humility. And um, it will greatly enhance your life group experience as well. I'll get into more of that next week. But I hope you'll come back. I think about all the preaching that has happened this year and all the things that we've talked about together. We have talked about trusting God and grounding ourselves in God's word and living faithfully every single day, trusting him about being a church that does not drift off of our foundations, but trust God for everything, letting the chips fall where they may. And I believe all of that is going to come together in a big conclusion, if you will, to these next four sermons. So I hope you'll come. I hope you bring your friends and be a part of it with us.